Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Would you like to draw our attention this morning to the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20? And if you were with us last week, you would remember we began Acts 20, verses 17 through 38, talking about wholehearted gospel ministry, what that is, what that looks like, why it's important for us to know what it is, why it's necessary for our lives. And from this section of Scripture, there are four principles we're going to be looking at. Last week, we made it through point one. And this week we'll make it through point two. So Lord willing, next week we'll make it through three and four, but today just point two. But as we look at Acts 20, would you stand with me as we read this together, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I test to you, testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said 
it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. To Father, Son, and Spirit now, our souls we lift, our wills we bow. To you, the triune God, we raise with thankful hearts our lives of praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. On November 12th, in the year 1660, John Bunyan arrived at a farmhouse in the little hamlet of Lower Samsell in Bedfordshire, England. His intent upon arriving at the hamlet was simple, to hold a service where people would meet to hear the word of God proclaimed through his preaching. But there was another force at work this day with the magistrates who had issued a warrant for Bunyan's arrest. And it was this warrant that it was in the hands of the local constable. The danger of Bunyan's impending arrest was made known to him before the meeting was held. And many thought he could have easily escaped if he had the mind to play the coward. But Bunyan was there to preach the gospel, and so preach the gospel he did. He had only given out the text he was to preach that day when the constable came in and apprehended Bunyan. His charge? Preaching without the official rights from the king. For Bunyan, the option for being freed was to be found by agreeing to preach no more. To which Bunyan replied, if I am free today, I will preach tomorrow. At the time of his arrest, Bunyan left behind his pregnant wife, four young children, the eldest of whom Mary was blind. His wife would plead with the judges for his release, but to no avail, and eventually the child she bore would arrive stillborn. Bunyan spent the next 12 and a half years in prison. And when thinking about his family, he said this, quote, Oh, I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet, thought I, I must do it. I must do it. Close quote. Bunyan had only the comforts of the Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs while he was in prison, but also used the time profitably for writing. He wrote many tracts while in prison, along with his book entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, where he made this comment concerning his being imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel. Quote, Almighty God, Being my help and shield, I am determined to suffer if frail life might continue so long, even till the moss shall grow upon my eyebrows, rather than violate my faith and principles. Close quote. It was during this time also that Bunyan began to write his most well-known book, Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan was one of the first to be arrested under King Charles II and one of the last to be released for preaching the gospel. 
Why all of this? Simply because he would not give up (laughs) preaching. How many of us would have given in? Would have given up? Would have said, it's not worth it. It's not worth being separated from my wife. It's not worth being separated from my children. So agonizing was the thought to Bunyan that he described being separated from his family like this. It was like the flesh was being pulled away from my bones. Would you have gone on? How many of us maybe would have been the friends of Bunyan who would have tried to persuade him to play the coward. It's simple, John. Just agree not to preach and everything will get back to normal. Everything will be fine. You will be with your wife, your children. All you have to do, John, is just say the word and you can be free. But John would not do it. Why? Because the gospel was so dear to him and the preaching of it so absolutely necessary. How did John Bunyan view the normal Christian life? How did John Bunyan view wholehearted gospel ministry? Maybe we could understand or begin to understand this by looking at his description of the valley of the shadow of death in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. As the main character, Christian, approaches the valley of the shadow of death, he meets two men coming out of the valley in a hurry. They were self-love and critic. They urge Christian not to venture into the valley if he loves his life. But Christian ventures on into the valley with sword drawn, not knowing, that, not knowing what lays ahead of him. But this he does know is that it's the only path to the celestial city. And here is what it says he experiences from Pilgrim's Progress. Now he saw on one side of the road a very deep ditch where the blind for centuries have led the blind, from which none have ever emerged. And on the other was a filthy quagmire where the lustful of all ages have fallen and have found no bottom for their feet. King David once fell in here and would have drowned had not the merciful Lord of all lifted him out. The path between the ditch and the quagmire was exceedingly narrow, and Christian had to be extremely cautious to stay on it. It was almost like walking a tightrope over the bottomless pit in the dark. To go on was very dangerous, but it was just as hazardous to attempt to turn and go back. He crept along, feeling his way, not knowing what minute he might come to the end of the path and plunge downward into death. In the middle of the valley, close by the path, was the mouth of hell, from which came flames and smoke rolling out toward the path, and there were hideous noises and doleful voices against which Christian's sword was ineffective. Yet he had another weapon that was always effective, fervent, effectual prayer. So he cried, O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Then he had a little more faith. Bunyan put this forth as the experience, the path of every single Christian. This is what the ordinary Christian would experience. This is not merely what he went through, although Paul Bunyan, or not Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan did go through that. It's what all Christians must go through. It tells us that the Christian life is not an easy life. And even more, it tells us, as those who are engaged in gospel ministry, we will have to know these things as well. This is why Paul has called the Ephesian elders to himself, to tell them to pursue wholehearted gospel ministry, to strengthen them in the midst of difficulty, to instruct them in the midst of confusion, to encourage them in the midst of discouragement, persecution, and false teaching. And Paul has called the elders of the Ephesian church to this port town of Miletus to give his farewell address. Paul is making his way to Jerusalem for Pentecost. 
but makes this important stop to continue to build up Christ's church. These last words from Paul to the Ephesian church were not merely important for the church then, they are just as important for us today. And we're reminded that these words transcend any given time period. They transcend culture. They transcend every barrier that we might put around them. We cannot say that what Paul says here does not apply to us. Because what Paul does is he strategically lays the groundwork, the basics, the very foundation of every church. And that is wholehearted gospel ministry. This is why it's recorded for us, laid down for us. We draw upon these principles, not just to learn them, but to seize them, to hold on to them tightly, to say these are necessary for us and we will never let them go. We will never compromise on these. We will never waver on these because we know and hear the warning of the Lord Jesus Christ who walks among us and warns us of removing our lampstand if we let the love that we had at first falter. So four principles from this text. And I want to show you just for a moment how I'm splitting this text up because I want to show you that I'm not doing anything special. Anyone could do this. You could do this reading your Bible. Just look here with me for a moment. Verses 22. I'm using the ESV. You can see this in other translations as well, but you see it definitely in the ESV. Verse 22, it says, and now. If you go down to verse 25, again, it says, and now. If you go down to verse 32, it says, and now. And so, taking those as markers in Paul's speech, and so you look at those sections then, it's divided into four sections, 17 through 21, 22 through 24, 25 through 31, and 32 through the end. So you could do that. As you read the Bible, you could find those markers with a little observation yourself. I'm not doing anything special up here. Trying to look and see what God's Word says, what God's text says, and how Paul's words Give us clues to what he is saying to us and what, more importantly, what God is saying to us. We've already seen the first principle, which is this. Gospel ministry is a way of life. It's not a switch that you flip on and off. It's a way of life for us. It's the way that we live among each other. We see that it's important how we live because my spiritual life has an impact upon you and your spiritual life has an impact upon each other. Gospel ministry must be a way of life for us. Serving the Lord with all that we are. But number two this morning, we'll be focusing on this. Gospel ministry is dedicated to denying self. Gospel ministry is dedicated to denying self. Would you describe yourself as a dedicated person? We can think of areas in our life where we show more dedication than others. Dedicated to my family, dedicated to my friends, dedicated to my job. We are dedicated to those people or things that hold a certain priority in our lives. We're dedicated to people or things that we love. We are dedicated to those people or things that we believe to be of benefit to us or as advantageous to ourselves. But if we're to think about being dedicated to denying self, we have to be able to think against the grain from what the world tells us. The world is not about denying self. The world is about loving self. The world is about preserving self. The world is about doing everything possible to ensure that self is taken care of, provided for, happy, secure, and complete. Denying self is the last thing the world would tell us to do unless we are merely doing it for a time so that in turn we can love ourselves more. 
in our world, it is absolutely crazy, unthinkable to give up self. But this is part of the core of gospel ministry. How does it play out before us in this text? We see it in Paul's own life and ministry. Paul is on a journey. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going there with money that he has collected from the churches who want to financially help the church in Jerusalem. But ultimately, what reason does Paul give as to why he is going to Jerusalem? It says this, he is going there because he is constrained by the Spirit. We could just as easily say that Paul is bound by the Holy Spirit. This is the idea. By being bound or constrained by the Holy Spirit, Paul had only one option, to go to Jerusalem. He could do nothing else. That is what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do, and so this is what God wanted him to do. There was no way around it. The man who had once been going out looking for Christians to bind them, arrest them, now himself was bound, not by sinful men, not by enemies of the cross, but bound by the gracious, loving, encouraging, correcting Holy Spirit. Paul could not say, no one tells me what to do. No one is the boss of me. I am my own and I will decide what is best. I will choose for my own life where I want to go and what I want to do. I will create my own security, my own comfort, my own sense of well-being. I will be in control. No. It was the Holy Spirit that constrained Paul, that bound Paul, that compelled Paul. And because it was the Spirit who constrained Paul, Paul could do no other. For the Christian, it should not even be a question of, do you want to be constrained by the Spirit? It is rather, you must be constrained by the Spirit. You must be bound by the Holy Spirit. You are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but you are to live in such a way that you are following Him. Believers are those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. There is no escaping that. There, this is not an option for the believer in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is in us and works in us as those who have crucified the flesh, that is our sinful flesh, our sinful desires, our sinful ways. We have put our flesh to death so that we might live according to the Spirit. How many of us can say that we, I, am constrained by the Spirit? And how many of us would say, I desire, I want to be constrained by the Spirit? And to know that being constrained by the Spirit does not hold us back. Rather, this is what leads us into the joyful and satisfying life of one who trusts in Christ. Listen to Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Or Romans 8, 14-17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Look at where this indwelling of the Spirit brings us. It, it's not a spirit of slavery. Being bound by the Spirit is not meant to keep us in fear. It brings us into an intimate, close, trusting relationship with our Heavenly Father. And being constrained by the Spirit does not eliminate the need to trust in the Lord. How do I know that? Well, look at what Paul says. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. 
Being constrained by the Spirit does not mean that we will know every last thing. It does not mean that we will have everything under control. It does not mean that we will have to not wade through the uncertainty of possible future events. Paul had gotten to this point where he says, I'm bound by the Spirit. I don't know what is going to happen. I don't know exactly what the outcome of this trip will be, but I know that I am doing precisely what I am supposed to be doing because I am constrained by the Spirit. This is where He has led me. This is what the will of God is for my life, and it's out of my control. It's out of what I think might be best, or it's not what I might like to do, or even what I think might be beneficial for myself or for my family, but I know that this is what God wants, and so I can trust Him, and I must trust Him in everything. While Paul does not know all the specifics of what will happen to him at Jerusalem, it's interesting, he does know generally what will happen to him in Jerusalem. He says this, the Holy Spirit has testified to him, somehow made it known to him, made it clear of what the general flow of Paul's life would look like. And what is that? That in Every city, every city, imprisonment and afflictions await him. What would be our response to such testimony from the Holy Spirit? Thanks, but no thanks. If that's what awaits me everywhere I go, If I'm looking at imprisonment and afflictions, I'll stay home. I won't go anywhere, do anything. It'll just be Jesus and me, and everything will be fine and dandy, and I'll stay out of harm's way. I'm not made for that kind of challenge. I'm not ready for that kind of difficulty. It sounds too hard. Lord, please send someone else. Looking for excuses as to why you can't be a gospel minister? Do you want a reason why gospel ministry isn't for you? Do you want to find a loophole somehow, an exception to the rule as to why the regular difficulties and sufferings of gospel ministry do not apply to you? Why you might be the exception as to what happens in the normal Christian life? You think this is why Paul tells this to the Ephesian elders? For them to say, well... We're glad this applies to you, Paul, but it doesn't apply to us. Or does Paul tell them this to encourage them that when they face such things, they know they are not alone, that there is nothing wrong with them and what they are doing, that in fact they are experiencing what everyone else experiences when they are standing in the raging river of gospel ministry. This life was no surprise to Paul. Paul knew what his life held from the very time he was saved. Do you remember what our risen Lord told Ananias when he was to go to Paul, who at that time was Saul? The Lord says this, Go, speaking about Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Here it is, imprisonment, afflictions, suffering for the sake of the name of Christ. And it was going to happen everywhere he went. Does knowing this make Paul give up? Does it make Paul get discouraged? Does it cause Paul to fear? No. Because he knows that being bound by the Spirit does not ensure an easy, comfortable Smooth, pain-free life. But what Paul does know and does trust and does believe is that even these imprisonments, even these afflictions, even any and all suffering he would have to go through does not kill gospel ministry, but will be used by the Lord to enhance and bolster and strengthen gospel ministry. Look back at these two verses for a moment. Verses 22 and 23. If you were to take these verses alone, 
by themselves. If this is all that Paul had said, how might you view these verses? Paul, this is the most dreadful, the most terrifying, the most frightening news. This is the worst news imaginable. Is that how you have viewed these verses, if this was all of the information you had about Paul's life? Or if this was all of the information you had about your own life? How would you respond? Paralyzing fear? Wriggling to find a way out? Outright rejection and defiance? No. I will not go. I will not go through with this. I will not live this way. Let me tell you, it would be the worst news in the world if Paul was not dedicated to denying himself. It would have been dreadful news had Paul made it his main concern to preserve himself. His life. It would have been horrifying news had Paul made it his sole purpose to save his life. It would have been devastating news had Paul's concern only been his personal satisfaction, comfort, and happiness. It would have crushed Paul if Paul's main concern was self-love and living for himself. But what does Paul say? It is good news that I am constrained by the Holy Spirit. It is good news that I do not know what will happen to me. It is good news that imprisonments and afflictions await me. And I consider it good news because I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. What in the world and in our flesh we think of as bad news, in the eyes of the true believer, Jesus Christ is actually good news because it reminds us that we are not our own. We are not living for ourselves, but that we are part of something bigger. We are, we are united to someone greater. We are part of a family and a kingdom that will not be crushed by the evil system of this world, that will not be crushed by Satan or his demons, but we know that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All who are in Christ Jesus will prevail. And who are we that we would want to maybe argue with Paul at this point? This is the apostle Paul we're talking about here. This is Paul who had seen the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. This is Paul who had gone on three missionary journeys, seen so many people come to faith in Jesus Christ, started so many churches. This is Paul who had the ability even to heal the sick, to raise dead people back to life. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote 5% of the entire Bible, 24% of the New Testament. Such a man used by God for great things, great things that are still being used by God to have an impact on us today. How could Paul say such a thing? No, Paul, you are, you are very valuable and you are very precious. But that is not how Paul considered his own life. His life was not his own. He did not put such a value on his own life or hold his own self as precious because he knew that that was not the heart of gospel ministry. He understood that there was to be a complete dedication to denying self if he was to be used by God for God's glory and for the furtherance of God's kingdom. He gives us a summary of this idea in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is what gospel ministry is all about. To live is Christ. It's the one who says, the love of Christ controls me because I have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's the one who says, I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Whole 
hearted gospel ministers have heard the call of what Jesus says when he said, I have been crucified, when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Dear Christian, you are absolutely doomed to complete failure if somehow you think you can be a part of wholehearted gospel ministry and still gain the whole world. If you think you can save your life. What is gospel ministry about? It is about denying self, taking up your cross. It is about losing your life for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the gospel. It is about sacrificing self. It is about dying, dying to self each and every single day. It's a one thing to deny yourself once. Even the most pagan person could perhaps do this. But it's something completely different to be dedicated to denying self and doing that over Again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And why do you do that? Because you love Christ, you love the gospel, and you love the church. Isn't this why Paul accounted his life of no value, not as precious to himself? He did it because the Lord Jesus Christ had given him a ministry, had set him on a particular course, had placed him in a race. And Paul was going to run that race until he crossed the finish line. And Paul gave himself up for the purpose of finishing the race. This is the kind of language that Paul uses about gospel ministry. Listen to what he says in Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Or how about 2 Timothy 4, 6-7? For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In both instances, Paul was willing for his life to be poured out as a drink offering on the altar of people's faith. Paul sacrifices himself not to get himself ahead, but for the sake of others. For the sake of other people's faith. Paul was willing to be emptied for the sake of Jesus' name and for the maturing faith of other people's lives. He gives all of himself, and he gives it to the very end, to the point where he has finished the race. But what is this course? What is this ministry that the Lord has appointed to him? It is the preaching, the proclamation, the solemn testimony of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is laying down his life for the sake of the gospel. It makes me think back to what he says there. Paul did not have to see his life as precious or as of any value. How could you say such a thing? Did you say such a thing about your own life? My own life is not precious and it's of no value. I consider it that way. That's the way that I live my life every single day. How do you get to that point? When we tell ourselves the preciousness of life and life is precious, how do you get to that point when in your own life you could say, my life is not precious to me. I don't value my life. How do you live that way? You live that way when there is something that is 
more precious and of more value that you found than even your own life. What is that? What is it that is more precious and more valuable than my own life? Paul could say this because he had found that the gospel of the grace of God is more precious and more valuable than his own life. And so he gave his life to that and for that because he knew it was through this gospel that God was reconciling the world to himself, that God was saving sinners, that God was bringing people into his kingdom. What do you view as precious and valuable in your life? Do you view your own life that way? Or have you come to the point where the gospel of Jesus Christ is more precious and more valuable than your own life? That's how you're going to be dedicated to denying yourself every single day. It's the parable, isn't it, that Jesus tells about the man who finds a treasure in, his, in a field? What does he do? He goes and sells everything he has to buy that field and that treasure. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ that treasure in your life where you'd say, my life is of no value. My life is not precious because that is more important, is more precious, is more valuable than anything else. And I love how Paul describes the gospel here in these verses. Here's the beauty of proclaiming this gospel. It's described as the good news of God's grace. It leaves nothing for us to do to secure our own salvation. The gospel of God's grace instead only leaves us standing in complete awe and wonder at what God has done for us. This is what the gospel of the grace of God does. It stirs us, it strips us of our own attempts to get to God. It strips us of every man-made effort to somehow reach God. It removes every idea or notion that somehow we can make ourselves look good, look righteous, look acceptable in the sight of the holy God. The gospel of God's grace leaves nothing for, of us, for us to boast of in and of ourselves. But it leaves us rejoicing in the fact that God has done it all and now God has given us this great gift. You, you step, step back and behold the glory of the gospel of the grace of God. Stand in wonder at what God has done for you. Stand amazed at the absolute goodness of God toward sinful and ungodly men and women. God's grace, God's holy favor shown towards undeserving sinners. Sometimes people say that God's grace is His unmerited favor. But really, it's demerited favor. It was we were doing everything so as not to deserve God's grace, but God gives it to us anyway. The gospel of God's grace is absolutely offensive to the worldly way of thinking. Worldly thinking has this idea that somehow we can do enough, that we can be good enough, that we can participate in bringing about our own salvation. That it must in some way be dependent upon us. And oftentimes I think that that thinking just seeks to make people feel better about themselves. I'm not really that bad because look what I can do. It's offensive for people to hear this. You can't do anything to get to God. You can't do anything to save yourself. You cannot create a relationship with God. What is the greatest challenge for man? Do nothing. 
That's what God does over and over and over again, even in the Old Testament, when he's fighting for his people, when he's saving his people. He says, look, I'm going to do all of this stuff, and you just stand over there and you do nothing. I'll do everything. Watch this. You just walk through the sea, and I'll part the waters, and I'll bring them back over Pharaoh. You do nothing, Israelites. I'll do everything. I'll fight for you. I will save you. I will rescue you. What's the greatest challenge to mankind? Do nothing. And God will save. And God does save. In our world, there are only two ways. The good news that the redemption of all mankind comes through God's grace, through His Son, Jesus Christ, or the bad news that your salvation is partly dependent upon you, or even worse, completely dependent upon you. Where these two ways diverge, we find that the gospel of the grace of God gives complete assurance of salvation, while the other gives no assurance of salvation whatsoever. Do you need to stand in awe of the gospel of God's grace again? Do you need to marvel at how wonderful, how marvelous is our Savior's love for us? And as you meditate on that, do you need to tell yourself, look at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ our Lord, where He has sent His only Son into the world to die in the place of sinners, to shed His blood, to hang upon a tree, bearing our punishment so that we might find forgiveness of sin and new life in Him, the risen Lord. God has done everything to bring salvation. That is the gospel of God's grace and It's that gospel that leaves us saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. Can you say this this morning about yourself? Oh, that God's saving grace towards you, towards me, would not be in vain. We would say, yes, God's grace has been lavished upon me. I believe that I put my faith and trust in that, and that alone. That's a gift given to me. Nothing that I've done to deserve it, to own it. Maybe you're here today for the first time you realize that it's not about what you do to save yourself. It's not about your own efforts to get to God. It's not about your goodness But it is about a righteous Savior who removes your guilt of sin and gives you His righteousness so that you are able to stand forgiven and blameless before God the Father. God is calling you to repent, turn from that sin, put your faith completely in Jesus Christ. Receive this good news of God's grace this morning. It's a gift That if you have not received this gift, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. What I love about this gospel of God's grace, as Paul describes it here, is it's exactly the same thing as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God's grace. If you want to know what God's grace looks like, you have to look no further than to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because It's there that the riches of God's grace are to be seen in their fullness. That's why Paul says to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I want to take a step back just for one moment. And look at this course that Paul is on. Paul is on this course toward Jerusalem. We can see that this is a similar course that we once found Jesus on. We read in Luke about Jesus in Luke 9.51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was going to Jerusalem knowing full well what was about to happen to him. We see him predict it three times before he finally gets there. It would be the ultimate 
dedication of denying self. It would be the ultimate act of giving of himself, of pouring himself out, of finishing the course that had been given to him by the Father. Why did he do it? Why did the Son of God do this? Why did he go to Jerusalem knowing full well that he would die? Isaiah 53.11 says this, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's why Jesus did it, isn't it? To make many to be accounted righteous and to bear their iniquities. That's why Jesus did it for me, to, so that I could be counted as righteous and so that he could bear my sins, my iniquities. To bring sinful people to God, to make ungodly people righteous, to bear the just punishment for our iniquities and our sin upon himself. To give us God's grace and to give us God. Himself. What glory there is then that is given to God in the gospel ministry when we are those who are dedicated to denying ourselves. Oh, the glory of the cross that you would send your Son for us. I gladly count my life as loss that I may come to know the glory of The glory of the cross. If I am free today, I will preach again tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to deny self. Teach us that the gospel of God's grace is more precious and more valuable than even our own lives. Because it's this that brings ruined sinners into a relationship with you. And let us be those who say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. May we marvel at the grace been shown to us and may it be our strong desire that others know this grace in their own lives. That they would see that you have done everything for them. There's nothing left for them to do to save themselves, but simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen our faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.